Welcome to PR for Humans, the podcast for the best communicators in the business. Today, I'm thrilled to be here with the master of numbers, Britain's favourite mathematician. It's Marcus Dusotoy, star of the TED stage, TV shows, lectures, and writer, of course, of fascinating books about maths and science. Hello, Marcus. Hello. Um, well, tell us what you're up to right now. Um, another book on the way, projects, I'm sure, also underway. Yes, writing on? another book, which is... Um uh, perhaps something I was quite surprised to find myself doing. Being a mathematician, uh, I'd spent my sort of early years uh, sort of hiding away, doing uh, my equations, proving theorems. Um, but at some point in my sort of kind of career, I, I realised I wanted to share these stories um, that I was creating for my mathematical community uh, with a wider audience, um, with my family, with my friends, uh, with with the public. Um, so actually, I've spent a lot of my time recently um, writing books, trying to communicate the excitement of what I've been doing as a mathematician, um, but to people who don't have that technical language. So it's it's quite a challenge. So I'm on my sixth book now. So um, yeah. Wow. Congratulations. And and this is what this podcast is all about, trying, trying to communicate in different ways and teach people different ways to communicate. So you're taking... Um, a subject which is perhaps not known for its sort of headline grabbing ability or or ability to sort of whip up and engage audiences and yet you have been doing that and are doing that so what's the what's the big challenge of of getting mathematics and science to to a wide mainstream audience i think the first problem is overcoming the misconception about what mathematics really is um so when i give a talk often the response is well um, I, I like what you're talking about, but I didn't realise that was maths. Um, so I think most people have this impression that, you know, what am I doing as a research mathematician? Am I doing long division to a lot of decimal places? And surely I've been put out of a job by a computer by now. Um, but um, I try to explain that a mathematician is at heart a pattern searcher. And that, you know, that's what mathematicians are trying to do, trying to look at the patterns underlying the kind of chaos and mess around us. And it's our best tool, really, for trying to read into the future, because if we understand those patterns um, in the past, we can continue the pattern and read into the future. So I think my biggest challenge is really just changing people's perceptions of what mathematics is. And when you start to show them it's about patterns, so patterns are everywhere, they're not just in numbers, they're in music, they're in art, they're in nature... And mathematics is the language that underpins all of these. Um, so for me, it's about connecting what was a, originally a world that they felt very was very alien um, with the things that they are very happy with and that they enjoy. And so making those connections and bridges um, is really, uh, I, I think, the key to opening the door to um, this beautiful world of mathematics. And this is even more relevant, I guess, now in, in the age of, of the algorithm um, the way in which we um, consume information and information is, is shown to us is determined by um, a whole series of incredibly complicated mathematical <laughs> equations, I suppose. It is, but you could say, well, why do I need to know how the Google algorithm works? Um, you know, it gets me my websites. I don't need to understand the underlying mathematics. Um, but I think actually, uh, you know, we are, as you say, in a very scientific age, a very uh, an age of data. Um, and I think really you are disenfranchised if you don't understand what's pushing and pulling you around. Um, so I think it is important that, you know, you're not, I'm not expecting you to create a new algorithm. Of course, if you do, you might be as rich as the, the Google boys. Um, uh, but I think that we do need to understand um, how our 
society is working and how it interacts with the world of science, which is partly why, you know, I'm a professor of mathematics at Oxford, but my other job is the professor for the public understanding of science, which I took over from Richard Dawkins. And and this is, I, I think, was a very inspired move by Oxford. They created it mid-90s. Um, uh, and in some sense, science has become this kind of superpower. It, it's, it has so much influence on society. But there was really little communication between the world of science and society. So uh, I see my role as a bit like an ambassador going out and trying to create bridges, trying to create understanding between these two worlds. And I think it's incredibly important because, you know, if you don't understand the science, you're disenfranchised from the debate. So, um, so I think, you know, more and more we're seeing scientists step up to the plate and realise that it's really important we share our stories because, for example, the... Uh, uh, um, the amazing advances of machine learning and AI and algorithms um, are going to have an impact on society. And the people are going to have to need to decide what they want those things to do. Do they want driverless cars? Do they trust them? You need to understand the underlying science and maths to be able to make those decisions. And are you a broadly an AI optimist or, or a pessimist in terms of how it will affect our society and our way of living? I think I'm pretty optimistic, actually. Um, I, I think that uh, we've seen in the past algorithms really helping to uh, uh, facilitate our lives. And I think just as long as we understand how they're working uh, and we remain a sort of... Uh, I think it's a partnership, you see. And that's what's important, that AI is helping us to be more human in a way because it can take over the things which are making us less human. So I think that's really important. Um, but it comes with understanding how that's working i think that we're able to make sure that we're still in control and what does separate human beings what what do you think we'll ultimately be able to do in 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 the far future that that um computers just will never be able to is there anything well if you're talking far future you see i would say that um uh machines at some point will become conscious um i think that is just a matter of the complexity of the network i there is a a lot of research now to show um, that we're understanding why a network might gain a level of higher consciousness. So, so I think if you're talking about far future, um, I think we're going to be in a situation, a very interesting situation, where these things are actually communicating with us on a conscious level. However, I think that is very, very distant. So I think it's more interesting perhaps to talk about the next 50 years, um, in which case I think that... Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, scare stories, movies and things, and I think those are really hyping things up beyond what we're going to see. That um, that I think that we are going to have a lot of things that humans are still going to be way much better than machines at. And one of them is about communication. Mm. I think language is something that is really tricky to um, code into um, a, an algorithm. And you can see that just... I mean, Google Translate is absolutely amazing. However, if you give it anything with subtlety it doesn't pick up the subtleties that we can as humans. So, um, uh, you know, it's good enough. And I think you'll hear that said a lot in the world of AI. This algorithm is good enough, but it's not human. So people in the field of communications who might be listening to this will probably have a job for a while yet. I think so. But, um, uh, you know, who knows? The AI is very fast. Uh, I mean, this we, one talks about comparisons with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I think this is a much faster... Um, revolution uh, of technology so I think that what put, took 100 years uh, in the industrial revolution may take us 20 years so I think people have to be ready to be fast changing and quick on our feet 
Let's stay with this subject of trying to predict the future, but maybe just a, a year or two in, into the future. I mean, I'm quite interested in this subject because, of course, we have business leaders who stand up with their annual results and they make forecasts for the year ahead. Or, you know, you get the Chancellor at the time of the budget standing up and making his economic forecasts or the Bank of England making their forecasts. And, you know, these forecasts are almost always wrong, <laughs> of course. Um, what do you think about our ability to predict the future, whether we're in business or in politics or any other walk of life? How accurately can we do it? Well, we know from mathematics that um, there are many situations where we have no control on the future. And this is the subject of chaos theory, um, which says that a very small change in the initial conditions can cause a very uh, big difference in the outcome. So I think it's really important that we understand the limitations of what we can know reading into the future. And I think something like the economy is a perfect example of a chaotic dynamic system so I think it's not surprising that these people fall flat on their faces when they uh, have made these predictions because they, they, they really need to reverse this we need to understand when a system is something that we can't read into the future and actually that's often more powerful knowledge than trying to say that I know what's going to happen knowing that you cannot know perhaps is is more important than knowing when you can know mm. so, so I think uh, understanding the limitations and being uh, brave enough to say, um, you know, this is now we're now in a situation where, you know, we, we can't control the future. I mean, that's that's the power of being an expert, actually. You know, I think that's when the experts were kind of knocked. Um, I think the point was there were a lot of people standing up and making predictions um, which were based on, on models that were inaccurate or, or were chaotic. And, and so I think the, the, the importance is an expert standing up and, and stating limitations of knowledge but this is very difficult because we don't have a, a nuanced language to be able to talk about um, probability for example yeah um, and very difficult in the business world I mean if you've got a fund yeah. manager or a consultant or an investor standing up and saying I don't really know what we're going to get a year or two from it. it's too chaotic but you know it could be between one percent and 98 <laughs> percent it's not very reassuring no but in the long term <laughs> um, of course that's uh that sort of honesty will bear fruit. Um, but, you, I mean, it's very interesting because it's sort of, um, uh, you know, if enough people stand up and make declarations, um, you know, it's like trying to predict the World Cup winner. Uh, we had an octopus that was, did very well because... <laughs> but, you know, there were many other animals that were making predictions and we didn't hear about those. So the business world is a little bit similar. You'll hear about the person who got it all right but won't hear about all the people that got it wrong. But probability says that there'll be one person who probably will make the right call. So, um, so you know, one has to understand the dynamics of these systems to really appreciate... Um, who to trust. Yes, and that's a really interesting, because, you know, some of these platforms now, investment platforms, they, they have a sort of the star trader who got brilliant returns last year, and the invitation is to copy that person for the next year. And that's probably well, a stupid a class- thing to do. There is a classic scam, of course, where somebody sends out, um, you know, a thousand letters predicting the football results for next week. Um, uh, 999 uh, get the wrong results, but one person gets the right results, and they start to believe that this person knows what they're doing. Uh, and then they send it out again, and a second week somebody might uh, get this. And so you believe them because they've got it right. But you don't realise all the other cases where they've got it wrong. So I, I think you just have... We, you see, the human is, has a very bad intuition for large numbers. 
and large data sets. Um, and this is why we often get misled and why we need the power of mathematics to be able to, to make sure that we can understand and counter our intuition. Our intuition on probability is always terrible, partly, I think, because humans don't get exposed in an evolutionary sort of way to a large number of cases. Mm. How many people do, is in your kind of uh, friend set? Maybe a couple of hundred. But when you need to do statistics and probability, you've got to consider uh, you know, data sets with a million people in it. Well, we have no, a million is kind of like infinite for us. We have no intuition for that. So, you know, if I say there's a one in a million chance that somebody in London will uh, um, have a DNA match with this DNA, you'll say, well, uh, that's, you know, dead cert that they did the crime. But of course, yeah. there are 10 people in, in, in London who have that DNA match if it's one in a million or a 10 million population. So now it's, you know, that person only has a one in 10 chance that they are actually the person who did it based on that DNA. So I think that's one of the powers of mathematics to to try and give people a language to counter the fact that we have such a bad yeah. intuition. And we don't understand big numbers very well, naturally. I mean, when no. we think about billions or trillions, I can't remember which US president it was who said that, that the, the, the national debt would stretch to the moon and back in dollar bills. But that was a sort of visual example that people could suddenly, oh, that's what it means, rather than saying a trillion or 500 billion, which people can't really... Yes, understand I think, and visualise. So this is very important in um, the way that I try and communicate things because, you know, you will have something which just doesn't resonate for uh, somebody like a large number, a trillion, a million, um, uh, a Brazilian. I wish that was a number. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, and so you've got to find something which has a, a better intuition for them. So, for example, uh, time scales might be a good thing. So, you know, uh, understanding your probabilities of winning the lottery uh, so, you know, you say, well, it's a one in uh, 14 million chance um, or, you know, if I get five numbers right, it's one in whatever. Um, that just is meaningless. But if you then put it in the context, well, if you bought a lottery ticket every week, um, you know, how many lottery tickets would you have to buy? And then you say, well, if the first homo sapien, the first thought he or she had was to go and buy lottery tickets, if they bought one one a week, by now they might have won once. So suddenly that gives you a story to put that number one in 14 million into context and you go well that's very unlikely i think i won't buy a lottery ticket after all <laughs> yeah yeah and st storytelling is is so important it's one of the things um i try to emphasize when i'm doing you know public speaking training and communications training with with, with ceos and business leaders you can't just stand up on stage and give a list of of numbers or even just a list of things that have happened you've got to sort of find a way of weaving it all which you do superbly it weaving it all together into a story that makes sense for people well, there's been a very interesting piece of research that's been done that has shown that um, if you want to change somebody's opinion, um, showing them the data or the analysis, the, the numbers, doesn't help. You have to coach that in the context of a story. Um, and stories are incredibly powerful at um, creating opinions, but then also changing them. And I think that's uh, scientists need to learn that in a way because we somehow think well surely the data is going to speak for itself mm -hmm. um if you're talking about vaccination you show people the data that about you know we need to vaccinate this certain number of the population to stop measles spreading if somebody's got one story about you know somebody who got damaged by a vaccine that's not going to be wiped out by all of this data you need another story which says look at these kids who got measles because we didn't vaccinate i mean it's very it's very anti-scientific because you're using you know, a particular story um but i think that uh, as scientists we need to understand human psyche uh, well enough 
to, to be able to use our numbers and to put them into a story context quite often if we want to um, take people uh, yeah. along on But I, I guess good communication sort of needs to do both in that you need, yeah. you need evidence and you need example. And, and it's that sort of, you know, quantitative and qualitative storytelling, which is, is the kind of early grail, I suppose. Yeah, it, it is, exactly. I think that's when people really are, are, are with you, if, if you've got the evidence. Um, and, and I think, uh, but I think that at the moment, um, we tend to uh, put too much emphasis on the data and think that that will, will do the job for us. And we've got to realise that people respond um, uh, terrifically to a good story. Yeah. I think that's what I do in my own sort of communication of mathematics because mathematics is a very dry subject, um, uh, can be, um, but for me, actually, mathematics is always about storytelling. It's about the drama of uh, certain numbers or shapes and how they have connections with other numbers. Um, and so a good piece of mathematics is one that tells a good story, takes you on a journey with jeopardy involved where you suddenly see a moment of ah oh, now i get what's going on mm. um and you know uh, I, I think uh, we underestimate so it's mathematics isn't just about all the true statements of numbers and geometry it's about us making choices and so when i try and communicate my mathematics that's what i do in a lecture is it's a little performance it's it's trying to tell a story uh, and take them on the drama and the things that i enjoy about that story and when you're preparing for something like that, a, a TED talk or a, or a big lecture, um, just talk us through your process. I mean, do, do you try and start with, with coming up with one big idea, or start with with you know what sort of props might I pull on stage, or you know how how do, how do you approach it? Do you have a set sort of routine? I really think of it like a piece of theatre. Um, and actually, my other great passion is, is theatre. I've always been loved doing sort of drama. I do a lot of work with theatre companies now, um, Complicite, for example. Uh, I did a show all about mathematics uh, with them, The Disappearing Number. Um, so for me, um, a lecture is like a, a performance. It's like a little show. And so you've got to think of it with that sort of arc um, of, um, of a performance and, and, and a storytelling. So, so I think that um, you know, that is um, primary in my mind that I want to, to, to take people on a journey through that story. So it, w it needs a kind of arc of a beginning, middle and end. Yep. Um, and... I, I use visuals, but I only use visuals almost like a stage set. So, you know, classic, uh, you know, one should not put too much um, uh, written text up on a screen. I really believe that. You, but I think people enjoy um, the combination of uh, hearing the voice combined with something that they can relax their eyes on, perhaps not just the lecturer. So, so I do think visuals help, but I always try and think this is a stage set. So I'm changing the visual to uh, provide a different context for the, the bit of story I'm telling. The other thing which I really love is audience participation. I mean, I've always said that mathematics is not a spectator sport. You get most out of it when you engage and do it. So, so I will look um, for opportunities during a talk to actually get people engaged, perhaps doing a little experiment with me on stage. Um, and this is always kind of tricky. I have to judge my audience carefully because, um, you know, a bunch of CEOs sometimes are a little bit nervous about performing in front of you know uh, 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 well um, I remember the, the, the Lemmings one that you did oh, well exactly the Lemmings one so you know it's a game of uh, well, got, uh, uh, Marcus musical got a lot chairs. of people onto stage and, and they did musical chairs and, exactly. as, and illustrated and, Lemmings falling off a cliff as to, as to how Lemming population suddenly and this falls. illustrates um, uh, the power of an equation sometimes to make predictions but then to go chaotic so but I think 
um, by embodying the actual mathematics, uh, people take away so much more. In fact, uh, the theatre company I'm working with, Complicite, we're doing an education project where we're using drama uh, to try and help primary school uh, to teach mathematics. And the evidence is that by actually performing and doing it with your body, um, that they're actually, uh, the ideas are sticking so much uh, better than if you just did it in a cerebral way. So, and I, I do think that that's uh, the case with an audience as well. But it's a risky thing to do because people don't always like getting up and, and getting involved. Uh, and then sometimes we'll make a judgment call during the talk on whether, okay, this audience are not going to enjoy this uh, if I get them up, or this one I can see are really um, up for uh, some engagement. So I sometimes will make a call halfway through the talk, okay, I'm going to do this in a more passive way. And what about human human scale? I mean, it's sort of, sort of man is the measure of all things and, and so on. And, and I've noticed in your talks, you, when you choose examples like the... Um, the um, spacecraft landing on on the comet. You said it's the size of size of a washing machine, I think. And that, yes. that's you know immediately we can think. Ah, oh, I understand how big that is. So there's something about human scale which is quite important uh, in in the way we tell our stories. I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, because we I'm generally. In my last book, I was talking about the very big, the size of the universe, and the very small, going down to quarks. Um, and weirdly, the human is sort of. Uh, whack bang in the middle of this kind of uh, scale uh, dimension um, uh, but I think you know it's, it's really tricky to give people a sense of um, the scale of the universe uh, for example um, and, and that you know you build it up in layers and, and that's uh, you've got to still bring it back to what a human is happy with which is things at our scale but that's very tricky and and it again it can sort of really mess with your intuition about things uh, the scale of time the scale of size um uh, it is just uh, you know we, we we need mathematics in a way to help us to to navigate um, that those kind of uh, uh, huge and small sizes, and a lot of people just try to switch off at that point. They can't imagine it. They can't. They can't see it. Imagine it being that small or that big, and they kind of then oh, leave that to the mathematicians. Yes, yes, but, but I think. That, but there's something very exciting about that. I mean, you know, part of what we uh, want to do is to transcend uh, the human, and and so I think that's why um, science has become so attractive because it gives us a way. You know, religion has started to fail in its stories. Uh, to, to supply us with something that um, excites us. And I think uh, science is, is kind of taking that place to, to conceive of um, a, a universe or maybe many universes or um, uh, you know, and other galaxies and the edge of the universe, a big bang. I think these are very exciting for people. Um, you know, as we look up into the night sky and wonder, you know, um, does, does that go on forever? Or does it kind of wrap around in some interesting ways? So I, I think that science is helping us to Go back to those questions that excited us as children, um, which we sort of repressed because uh, they were perhaps a bit scary. And some numbers are special and, and they pop up in nature and, and, in, and in life with, with more frequency or, or in interesting patterns, uh, as, as, as you've said. Um, when we talk about communication and, and, and rhetoric is, is one example where people talk about the rule of three. You know, you stand up and you say three things and don't say more than three. Is there anything super special about the number three? Um, other than the obvious is not too big and it's not too small. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, exactly. There are these numbers which have different characteristics. um, And I think that's, you know, something I recognise as a mathematician. uh, This 
Indian mathematician Ramanujan used to say that um, he used to know each number is his, his own personal friend, that they each had their own different characteristics. Mm. So, so three is interesting because um, it is, for example, a prime number. So it's got an indivisibility about it. Um, it's also, I think, the idea is that, um, it, you know, you need to give this idea of continuation. So if you go one, two... Um, you know, you haven't got enough of a pattern, but once you go three, you understand that there's a continuation to this. So there's, um, uh, it's also, you know, the idea of a triangle is, is very sort of that symmetry of, of um, the a three-legged position. stool or something. Is that exactly. Balance, is so it? I think, yeah. uh, but I think more interesting, perhaps, are things like the number seven, because mm. seven uh, has been significant for many cultures as kind of a lucky number or a significant number. Um, and you know why is that why should seven be um, an interesting number and I think that you know may relate back to our place in the cosmos because um, if you look back to Babylonian times you saw that um, they identified seven moving bodies in the sky so seven became kind of a significant number for them because they identified these seven uh, heavenly bodies I mean of course now we spotted a few more but um, uh, so I think uh, you know that's one reason why seven might have become significant and for, you, know, you can find it in such interesting places. Take Shakespeare. Shakespeare writes iambic pentameter. There are things with ten uh, beats in each line. Except when he has his characters talking about magic. So in Midsummer Night's Dream, if Oberon is talking about magic, suddenly that ten goes down to seven. Seven is an indicator of magic in Shakespeare's um, uh, world. Fascinating. And when you when you're writing a book, do you, do you structure it in seven different parts, or a talk, <laughs> or do you, do you use numbers in 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 the, in the way that you? Well, very interesting that um, the book what we ca- uh, what we cannot know. So I wrote. Uh, I wanted to identify areas of science that we might have limits of knowledge in, um, and I called these edges. Um, by the end, I'd identified seven edges of knowledge and now i didn't go for that as a deliberate like okay i need seven because seven's a magical number yeah. um but it seems to uh be perfect because of this kind of resonance of seven for people that think things um very often come in, in seven so um uh so yeah seven edges of knowledge um but uh but i think for me perhaps what's more important is the idea of symmetry I mean, that's mm. my area of research. I, I do number theory, but I also do symmetry. And I think that's very important in constructing uh, a book, a narrative, um, that you want to have those kind of moments which play off earlier moments. Um, and that resonance is something that gives humans a kick because they see the connection with something that's that's happened before. It's a very has a very musical quality to it, mm. I think. And, and musicians, composers use symmetry a lot because the brain kind of gets a, a little rush of dopamine as it recognises a connection with something it's just seen. Maybe it's reflected or it's... Um, but that recognition is sort of... Well, that's the buzz of doing mathematics, really. Indeed. Marcus, has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the PR for Humans podcast. Yeah, it's been a pleasure.